What's up, guys? Welcome to TCC's Conversation Podcast. I'm Pastor Grace, middle school pastor here at TCC, and today I have the opportunity of having a conversation with Pastor Tim Gaines and Austin Heller. So, guys, thanks for taking time out of your day to be here. Hey, Grace. It's good to be here. I'm excited. This should be fun. I <laughs> Honesty hour, when Tim was going on and on about uh, being in a real-life Nashville studio with austin it just made me laugh because i was like you mean austin's basement like but i guess it is like people do come and record there and it's a real studio and that's awesome it's a real basement studio yeah (laughs) my mom typically watches the service she'll like lay in bed and watch it online and she was like it was so cool to see austin in a studio it's like that was mean (laughs) i thought it too so Hey, real music gets recorded there. And one of the things I'm learning about Nashville that Austin has pointed out to me in the past, not far from our house, like most of the real gospel music gets recorded in a house that looks like a normal house. And so I figured that's a real studio around Nashville. If real restaurants are in houses and uh, real like dentist office and everything else is in a house then why not a real recording studio? So for those of you who don't live in Nashville, (laughs) we don't have any houses to buy here anymore because everyone's been in Nashville. (laughs) And they every house in the city into a restaurant. And there's no parking. It's like you'd park in someone's front yard. So it's disgusting. This is me announcing my candidacy for city council. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Change the zoning law. Putting out a PSA that people need to stop moving to Nashville. But... Being on the city council, I'd vote you on. You have so much free yeah. time to participate in that. I think it'd be really good for you. <laughs> oh, man. But so this Sunday, uh, Tim, you honestly gave a really awesome sermon from chapters two and three of Romans. I really appreciated all the places you went. Um, I remember we were showing Jordan how to use the actual metronome. Which still boggles my mind. I'm not going to let it go. That Jordan didn't know how to use like a real metronome. Like I understand why. It makes sense. But it still just is weird. Um, and Trila and I were like arguing over metronomes being good or bad. Because <laughs> I think metronomes give me PTSD. And Trila really enjoyed it. And Tim was like, this is the sermon. This is literally <laughs> Jews and Gentiles. And I was like, I'm the Gentile? Okay, that's fine. Let's <laughs> But it is fair. I hate metronomes. They they do. They give me PTSD. I like to play to my own beats when I play music, which is why I'm not in a band. Which I can talk a lot. I love metronomes so much. And I don't know if this fits into the metaphor. It makes the metaphor not work as much. But the reason why I love it is because for me, it gives you a thing in time that I don't have to question where the beat is. Like, that's the biggest thing I love is because when you have all these different things happening, you're like, wait, where's the beat? Because everyone's not playing on when it's right there. You're like, oh, yeah, there's the beat. We don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't know if that helps or hurts this metaphor or not, but um, it's one of the reasons why I like metronomes. <laughs> that's really good. I thought here, Tim, like, what was kind of in your brain? Like, when was the first time you had that idea of allocating the law and the guidance of God with a metronome? Well, in complete honesty, I wrestle uh, with the kind of hermeneutical approach. Uh, no, well, that I, that I use. 
So I was going back all week whether or not I should in some ways interpret law and gospel through this metronome. And that's because I struggle with the homiletical approach sometimes of using these overarching metaphors. If I could be really honest, I really struggle sometimes with like in in the task of preaching, um, allowing rhetoric to actually overcome the message of the gospel. So I don't want people obsessing about that was such a clever way of saying this. So there was up until about Wednesday, I was just planning on getting rid of the pulpit, sitting at a table and just kind of speaking about these things. But then I couldn't get away from uh, how complex some of these realities are between law and gospel. And so as I kept thinking about it, I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and use this kind of rhetorical device to get at the relationship between law and gospel and hopefully do that in a way that is true to what the Roman church was experiencing. And so the way that I um, did that is in some ways through my experience as a worship leader and someone who really is kind of like you, Grace, I like to kind of feel the music a little bit more. And I've played with people who are more classically trained and I drive them crazy because um, I tend to be more of an improvisational musician. I love to be able to kind of like um, feel out musically what the other musicians are doing and kind of like respond to them more playfully. And I've worked with people who said like, that's not written in the music. And so when I was reading this passage over and over again, I just kept thinking the frustration that must have been there. Um, and probably the closest thing I could experience to that level of frustration is working with people in worship bands who just cannot improvise, like have to be exact and precise. And I can't fault them for that. Um, you know, that's there's nothing wrong with that, bad with that. But um, what Paul is attempting to do here is to bring these two groups together. And so there's that, but then there's also these kind of social tensions that we talked about in the sermon between the don't judge me crowd and the call out culture that I think that we're living through. And really this was kind of my heart's cry over the last couple of years in Austin. I know I've talked to you about this several times that in the social conversation that we seem to be having right now in our culture, um, I've joked with Austin that we need, we're missing a great big old dose of the doctrine of original sin. And that is to say that when we, go after either a political figure or someone who has kind of done something wrong that's out of step, that oftentimes what I see is like, we don't know quite how to do that because we want to go after them entirely. But then we also at the same time um, don't want to be seen as the one who's just like judging. And so the way that that comes out in our culture seems like, well, it's okay to do it to a person who has a lot of power or a public figure But then you just can't do it to these kinds of folks. And to me, as a social ethic, it just seems wildly um, problematic to be able to approach something that way. So my hope was, let's read Romans 2 and 3, and maybe it can speak to us around this kind of kitchen table conversation. Because I know that maybe not my kitchen table is normal, uh, but we have a lot of these kitchen table conversations on a pretty regular basis. Yeah, I know I was telling Grace earlier, I think this kind of ties into everything. Um, the first conversation I remember having you with you over coffee was I was coming to you and like kind of questioning what is original sin? Because a very like oversimplistic view that I had of is almost like this original sin was badness 
to use a very non-theological word, <laughs> and that Jesus is almost like this band-aid that makes us good. And I was like, it doesn't feel true. And you, I remember you kind of going into nuance, like, yeah, that's not quite it. And kind of how understanding, like, how I view original sin has kind of shaped um, and kind of, I guess, redefined how I view Christianity in a lot of ways. Um, and the nuance and gray of, like, it's not just this absolute evil. It's more of the sickness. And of, like, I think is what you're trying to say with the law um, is how it's like sometimes we lose the compassion of this idea that we all have sickness in us. And like, that's the language of sin. I don't know if I'm making sense with that at all or if that's tracking. Um, but that's been so much of my understanding the last year has been understanding is like, how do we have, you know, live up to what we are called to, but also have grace when we fail and understanding that we're all in this together and all like imperfect and sinful at the same time, but also working, um, and like striving to become more of the image of God. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I um, purposely did not use the phrase original sin in the sermon. And that's because Wesleyan scholars are kind of, um, well, I wouldn't say divided on this. We, when we talk about original sin, it certainly goes back to what John Wesley would affirm, that we are creatures who are born into a condition of fallenness. But what I didn't want to do is to open up the can of worms as to like what is original sin and actual sin. And sometimes theologians will make a distinction between those two things, um, conscious sin and unconscious sin, and the way that all relates to a holy life. And so you might have some folks who will say something along the lines of that in the work of sanctification, we are freed from original sin. If original sin is what you've just described, Austin, which is this kind of like internal thing that we're born with. And so I think there is this image where original sin is something that is like an organ um, that we are born with. And it's an organ that maybe the original parents didn't have. Adam and Eve aren't born with this organ, but like all of us have inherited this organ. And so that sanctification then is the extraction of that organ. And then we don't have to, it's like the appendix being removed basically. And what I was trying to do on Sunday was to talk about sin far more relationally than that. And so the metaphor of the, the musicians playing in the orchestra in relationship to the conductor or the composer is more what I was trying to present in the sermon to say that it's not a more the surgical kind of a thing here um, where, you know, we relate to God, like God is a surgeon who removes this thing as much as it is a healing of relationship and that the more deeply related we are to this God, the more in sync we are relationally with this God, the more that manifests in a life of joy and completeness and fullness and holiness and those kinds of things. So again, that is a live debate and it's not one I was really trying to, again, trying not to get in, in the way of the good news that I think Romans had to say to us. Um, but since this is the podcast and the people who are really interested want to tune in, that's kind of lifting the hood on the sermon, so to speak. I love that. It's funny that you talk about like the relationality in connection with holiness and sanctification. Um, I try not to use like perfection with middle schoolers because that just is like a word that doesn't help better understand the concept of what entire sanctification is for my middle schoolers. Um, and so when we talk about like heaven and we talk about sanctification, we like kind of bunch them together in this articulation of like everything being in right relationship with each other. 
Um, so it's like humans being in right relationship with other humans and like with God's creation and with God. Um, and that we, like you were saying, it's this outflowing of something that is already happening through our relationship with God. And so like in right relationship with God, it allows us to be in right relationship with all things. And like, again, metaphors are always going to break down and they're metaphors, but I really like for me, I think that articulation of like a conductor or like the click or a metronome, like as God's guidance. And like when we're in right relationship and watching our conductor, like it allows us then to play in sync with everyone else in the symphony that we're participating in. Um, And when we decide that we're going to like go off and do our own thing, like what we could do, it might be really, really beautiful and pretty, but like if it doesn't line up with what the whole symphony is doing, like it's just noise, you know? Um, and I think that's such a really helpful metaphor for as far as you can take it, obviously. But Which goes back to Austin's point on original sin. And that's where I want to say, it's not that I'm saying there's no such thing as original sin, but the way that we couch that. So if we think that original sin is this notion of like, we are just born um, with a, a bad organ or we're born with this kind of defect, um, that in some sense lessens the relational capacity, then it's just about me. It's about my problem. And what I was trying to do on Sunday was to talk about the social implications of the doctrine of original sin by suggesting that original sin is also a condition into which we are born. And by virtue of it being a condition into which we are all born, a web in which we're all caught, so to speak, from the day that we enter into the world, then it doesn't have to be this shameful, nasty kind of a thing um, where we then kind of pass judgment on one another for continuing to be caught in this web of original sin. And hopefully gives us this capacity for compassion so that when we see someone who is really just missing the mark, um, it isn't just this anger reaction, but maybe an anger reaction mixed with a compassionate reaction because we recognize the effects of original sin that are still catching that person up in some of the isms that I'm talking about here. So racism and sexism and classism, these kinds of things that are deeply affecting our, our world. And so um, I was trying to move us beyond that whole thing of like, you know, when people get called an ist, you're <laughs> racist or sexist or something along those lines and the, and the, the shields go up to say like, no friend, we are all caught in this. And when we use the term ist, we have to, I think, do that with this reality in our minds that we are all caught in the isms. Um, It's not that even something like racism requires a kind of conscious animosity toward a person of a different race. It's that the world in which we are living is fallen and we're all caught in some web of racism, um, you know, that w- regardless of whether we are consciously trying to, you know, um, uh, to be opposed to somebody of a different race or something along those lines, that it has affected me because it affects my brothers and my sisters. And so it runs through me and it catches them up and we're all kind of in this together, which is where I think Paul's language is so profoundly good, like to proclaim the good news of the gospel that liberates us from that original sin and gives us the righteousness of Christ who um, 
is completely faithful to the Father through the power of the Spirit under the conditions of the sinful world, in the midst of the conditions of the sinful world. And so Jesus is this, the one who comes and remains totally faithful to God under the conditions in, in this world that has already fallen. Man, that's awesome. Um, when you were saying the isms, one of the ones that just kind of came to mind was when I thought, I, I grew up in a, um, a lot of my family went to different holiness churches, but it felt like everyone was in a different denomination that would consider themselves holiness. And one of the things that I would consider maybe the tendency in some of those things is legalism. Um, and the thing that you were just kind of articulating that I loved is like, I feel like the answer to legalism is compassion. And it was, I was thinking at the same time of, um, I've spent so much time playing music with a metronome and it's like, you never want to call someone out when they just hit that wrong note. And I know you kind of said that. And the reason is, is because I know that if I play long enough, I'm going to start hitting those wrong notes. And I've had days where I almost can't seem to hit the right notes. And it's when I add that compassion, all of a sudden the ism of like legalism, it kind of just falls apart. And it's like, it feels like compassion is the answer sometimes to looking at law as maybe in a compassionate way. Um, and maybe that even opens up my compassion for someone who does have that tendency. Because here it is for me, Austin. Um, I think I spent a lot of my early years uh, going through my adolescence as a Christian in an incredibly legalistic way. Um, I was a metronome guy through and through. And so I would see what other kids in my high school were doing or my elementary school or whatever, and just kind of shaking my head and going, they just don't get it. They're awful. They're bad people. Um, you know, they're doing these kinds of things and they're out of step with the metronome. And so I had this kind of early operative sense of holiness that is, I do the right things. They do the wrong things. I'm a good person. They're a bad person. So part of what I was speaking to was me in that sermon too. Um, and like the tradition in which I'm wrapped up, it's got a hold of me but also has in some sense um, introduced me to this lifelong wrestling match of having to kind of wrestle back some of those legalistic tendencies of looking at another person going like, if you would just do it right, we'd get this thing together. It's interesting hearing you say that. I think, I can't remember why, but Sophie and I were literally just talking yesterday, I think, um, about or no Saturday about our parents and like how we were raised um and we were talking about uh some of our friends who have the tendency to be like really sarcastic um and make jokes that like aren't necessarily like the most beneficial for all parties a lot of like sexist jokes where I'd be like that's just not funny like it's not funny um and we were talking about how it was nice to grow up with parents who are really conscious and like we were not allowed to like be sarcastic to each other ever like it got shut down so quickly and I think part of the reason kind of flows out of like it's like your motivation in preaching the way you did on Sunday was that like I think my dad recognized that tendency in himself to have that really biting word especially when he was younger and so as he was raising his kids he was like shaping and equipping us to encounter the world in like a less intense sarcastic judgmental way we're like yeah like our family always has like their shortcomings and like things that they could have done better but that is one thing that I think we were both forever grateful for of 
like having that intentionality where it wasn't like we were being judged when we were sarcastic to each other. It was this formative, like we, we don't talk to each other like that. Like our words are going to build each other up. And if there is like conflict, you can resolve that conflict using positive words and like talk it out, but you don't need to attack that person or like attack them at their core. Um, and that's something that I just like dad jokes were never a thing. Like my dad never ever did that. I'd go to friends' houses and be like, your dads are so fun. Your dads are crazy. Cause my dad was not like that, but like in his like calm, patient way, like he was so formative and I think has really informed me and challenged me to be like a more patient person giving allowances for like other people's stories and they're not acting right but like why are they not acting right like it's not my place to decide whether or not their actions are good or bad like it's my place to have compassion on them and love them um so that was just something I was thinking of as you guys were talking I was like man my parents killed it in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah you have good parents. <laughs> I affirm this. I really love them. Think quite highly of them. Um, so like in my, my honest um, kind of response is, does this mean that Christians don't have a capacity for judgment? And I don't mean judging other people, but I mean making judgments in a fallen world about what is good and what is um, pulling us away from goodness. And so part of what I want to, in some sense, sit with in Romans 2 and 3 is Paul's kind of brilliant, inspired way where he is also giving us the capacity for judgment without judging, if that makes any amount of sense. Um, we, We make judgments all the time. We need to be honest about that fact. We make judgments between this good and that good, or this thing and that thing. And we, by virtue of what Paul is suggesting here, I don't think he's shutting down our capacity for deciding for one thing that is going to be good rather than another thing. It is that we make such determinations out of the conditions of an awareness of the fact that um, we are caught in this kind of world pervading sense of brokenness of sinfulness and that we always are making our decisions from a a place where we are potentially being swayed away from goodness. And so Paul just in his classic way continues to locate righteousness in Christ alone. And um, that if, if there's any way that we kind of make judgments, then it is doing so under and in the righteousness of Christ. And that, make, that gives me a lot of humility, you know, like, so I, part of my work is doing ethics, like making moral judgments in the world, but um, it would be really all too tempting for me to say, like, this is right and this is wrong, thus saith the ethics professor, like, no, part of what I need to be able to do here is to make judgments that are in full recognition of my own caughtness in the fallenness of the world. And um, then to render judgment only in relationship to the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, it's so interesting as we talk about judgment. One thing that uh, 
came to mind. I don't like to talk about the Enneagram too much on this because I don't know what people think of it. But like my personality type is I'm kind of the archetype of the judgmental. <laughs> You're not playing the click. <laughs> and I understand it. And the thing I've kind of noticed in my life until I like really connect with you on that of like growing up in high school and feeling like that, like I'm doing all the things right. Why isn't everyone else living up to this? But also finding how much that can fail. And the thing I feel like I've learned even more the last few years is how much patience plays into that. Um, I think the language of <laughs> uh, being slow to judgment is not about having the judgment. It's just like when we have those, are we reacting out of this like snap, um, almost like an ego reaction of like, it's just we're doing without thinking of it. And it's just a reaction to something versus like sitting with it, being a little slower to it. And I think of like the language of compassion um, of honestly, a lot of that comes from having compassion with ourselves because a lot of that when we're doing these snap things it's because we are being so hard on ourselves that we're not allowing ourselves to sit in this kind of just difficult place of like this person is doing something wrong and it's okay and it's i say like it's been a like that's been my growth process being it's okay for people to make mistakes because i make mistakes and like i always come back to the language of compassion um but ha as we're talking we're like how much patience goes with that too of just slowing down and not just reacting on all these judgments where it's like we feel like we know the law but also we don't always know the law, even if we have a really good understanding of it. And that's, yeah. Or we may know it really well, but we can't recognize how fallen we are. And when we fail to recognize how fallen we are in the midst of it, it changes our posture of engaging another person on that. And so, you know, for Austin, as I hear you talk, like I resonate so much with that. So part of me is like, yeah, can we say it's just okay for a person to make a mistake? And on the one hand, I go, yeah, yeah, compassion. On the other hand, I go, not when it's sucking the life out of some other person who's super vulnerable. You know, you see what I'm saying? Like, so can I not say anything about what's really fallen in our world? Um, like it's, uh, what, what I mean here is like partic participation in the isms. Um, you know, if I see someone, as an example, I remember a kid um, when I was living in Chicago, we went to a pancake breakfast and I don't even remember why it was like two towns over. We were supporting some kind of an organization and I think it was Boy Scouts. I think one of the kids in our youth group had sent, uh, had had us purchase some Boy Scout pancake tickets. And so we go to this thing. I, there's a kid who is probably 12 years old, 13 years old. Uh, he's probably a Trebekah student now and it remembers me, but um Anyway, uh, I heard him say to his friends, hey, you want to hear a joke? And I don't even remember the exact wording of the joke, but it was straight racism. I mean, it was like a racial, it was a joke about, I can't even re remember what it was now. And in that moment, I had to make this kind of snap judgment. Do I not judge him? And just kind of go, like, oh, what a mistake. Um, but in that moment, I just said, hey, brother, <laughs> I approached him and I said, that joke really hurts. And it doesn't just hurt people who have dark skin. It hurts me too, man. Cause these are my brothers and sisters that we're talking about here. We're all wrapped up in this thing together. And so I tried to do it as lovingly as I could with and wrestling even in myself, like, am I judging him for this? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But hopefully at the same time coming at the, it, him like as a fellow sinner does that make sense um to say like i i am not i'm the last thing from flawless but at the same time 
um, there is a there is a kind of uh, righteousness here that we can um, that we're being called to um, a, a, a being in sync with the the composer who composed the world in such a way that jokes like that just never ought to be funny. Um, you know, those kinds of things. So I, I don't know. That's kind of how I've been toying with this thing. It makes me think of like anyone who works with children, you're considered a, a mandatory reporter. Um, and one of the conversations I'll have with my students often is like, I want you to feel like you can tell me anything. And I always want to be a person that you feel like you can come and have conversations with and like know that like I am a safe place. But if you're being hurt, or if you're telling me about someone else who's like being hurt, whether that's emotionally, physically, mentally, like, I have to do something about it. I can't like keep it between you and me. Um, And then like talking about this like tension of judgment and like accountability is kind of a word I would pull in right that we are holding each other especially as like believers in Christ like accountable to this life-giving ethos and this like restoration of all life and all creation that God calls us to a new creation um and that like that is our role is to call out and mend spaces where like life is being removed whatever that means or looks like like I just think that that's a helpful way at least for me to think about it of yeah like I'm not here to say that I'm the person who's judging this other person but if I enter into a situation where I recognize that someone's actions is hurting themselves or someone else and is taking away like their value in God or their life and like life-giving experience like there's a space to step in and like create space for reconciliation and I wonder like that student that you had that conversation with like if they still think about it sometimes when they're about to do something stupid, but they're like, oh, oh maybe, maybe, maybe this isn't the best idea because of that one, you know, that one moment that really highlighted for them something that maybe they weren't totally sure about as they were doing it. And then have this like, okay, no, like this is affirmation that like, I'm not the only one who's wondering or there are other people who care and are going to hold me accountable. Yeah. It's like, I love that idea too of, um, how it's almost like are we when we make a judgment and we say that judgment to someone are we making that judgment to take life and build up our build up ourselves more or are we actually doing that as a way of like honestly in humility kind of tearing ourselves down because it feels like a destruction of our ego to help build up someone else and it's like i feel like capturing that balance and that nuance is like everything when it comes to making a judgment i don't know for me like i hate i hate calling people out for anything like I can't imagine being in your position, Tim, and like hearing that happen and then be like, what do I do? Like, do I do Like, I can't tell you how many conversations I'll be with like youth workers and we'll like see something go down and we'll be like, is this worth interacting with? Or do we let it go? Like, you're going to do it. I'm going to like, oh, I hate it so much. So power to you. I think that is a God giving blessing. I don't know. And I don't know that I handled it. Uh, so- situation perfectly but reading that situation through the lens of romans two and three at the kitchen table i kind of have to look at that and say if i'm going to approach him i have to do it as one who is also caught in the very same web of we could say original sin the fallenness of creation that um i don't come at him as one who is just in like perfectly enlightened who is never 
um, you know, laughed at inappropriate jokes or something along those lines and just said like, hey, brother, you know, <laughs> and do it as a brother. So that, um, you know, maybe what was going on in the Roman church there is you've got a group of folks who are saying like, you violated the law here and we're just going to call you out for that until you stop violating the law. I think part of what Paul is trying to suggest here is that the law is really good at exposing where you've blown it. It may not always open to the fullest capacity to reconciliation. And this is precisely the work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus opens this reconciling work to the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit so that the church can become a community of reconciliation, that we are we are given a ministry of reconciliation, that's 2 Corinthians 5, um, because we've been reconciled to God through Jesus. The, um, you know, I was, I was funny, I was before this, I was just on the phone with my dad, and I, t- I just sent him your sermon, because I was like, this sermon was such a good way to, like, understand holiness, sin, like, all these kind of things I'm grouping together, because um, I think it's what the metaphor is kind of putting together. Um, so Thomas, thanks for putting that sermon together this week. Cause it was, I think really impactful. Um, and I know I've talked with grace. It was like, sometimes it's like, there's a lot of sermons when we honest, I remember very few sermons in my life. Um, I think this one might actually stick with me a little bit. So <laughs> it was very, very impactful. Well, maybe because we recorded half of it in your recording. That's, studio. that's probably the reason why, yeah. but you know, <laughs> but Romans, I'm telling you what, man, that this book, I, I always love a good challenge, but when this shows up in the preaching plan, it's like, oh man, woo! Like that's the grand poobah right there. <laughs> like that's the book that like has always frightened me a little bit as a preacher. Like I know it's so good, but it's so profound that I feel like you know you don't want to touch that one unless you uh, have put on your your gloves, you know, like a, like an electrician, you know, you're dealing with some high voltage current here. And so you put on all your safety equipment, like deal very carefully with this one. And that's how I felt with this, with this one. Um, it's not something that just kind of pops out, but what a good, um, yeah, just a challenging, beautiful book. And I love the notion of reading it at the kitchen table too. Like it's real, it's not just this 30,000 foot view of kind of doctrines of these things, but how in light of the resurrection, we're working out how to have conversations about judgment and grace. You know, it's good. Yeah. And honestly, the one last thing I would say is it feels like um, a lot of times Romans, I feel like growing up, the message was, it was almost the book pastors would use to preach, like hit you over the head with of like, here's your guilt. This is why you need Jesus. And it's like, I love going into like, actually it's kind of the opposite of that. Um, because it's like looking at the nuance of what this is saying is like, actually it's the balance between that. It's not just that it's like showing we don't live up to it. And it's not the thing hitting us over the head. It's actually showing us like, no, this is actually how you live up to it. And it's by not pointing out when everyone else isn't in some ways. Yeah. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm hearing that in such a good news tone. And I, I think you're right, Austin. Most of the time when I hear that preached, it's almost as if the theology of Romans begins there. And it just doesn't. It begins in creation. God's good creation. It's kind of good symphony, so to speak. And um, then it devolves into this like sense of, of offness. Um, but the profoundly good news is that God is redeeming this through Christ. And so that we can 
live in this in this righteousness, which is a relational term. And, and that's one of the things I didn't really get to do. A metaphor doesn't really allow for you to get enough defining these terms, but righteousness really is um, a relational term. It has to do with the way that you are arranged in relationship to another thing. Justification is the same thing. It's we right justify, we left justify according to the relationship of the page. And so we are rightly justified to the father through the son. And that is just profoundly good news. So yeah, I, I think that's right, Austin. There's no one else I'd rather talk about such good news with. So it's, it's a wonderful time getting to have these conversations with you guys. Well, let's do it again sometime. Death totes. Got to figure out, figure out what's happening next week. That's forever the struggle. But thank you guys again for taking time out of your day and hanging out and talking about some scary, really, really good things. Well, love to you both. Yeah. yeah. It's good to be here. Here. All right. So do that again. Thanks again for joining us. <laughs> Head over to our website for updated information about worship gatherings on campus and online, and make sure to check out our sister podcast, which is the recording of each Sunday sermon. See you again next week. Woo! Good deal. All right.